while the uh, ushers are coming around, I hope that you guys can give me all of your attention. I want all of your attention, even though we kind of got some distractions, because I'm going to jump right into it. Thank you guys for working through uh, the offering. And again, if you could drop off your uh, survey and that Connect card in that offering as it comes by, that'd be helpful. Okay. In 1993, I don't know if you guys remember this, but in 1993, the Wu-Tang Clan, who knows the Wu-Tang Clan? Hold your... I see you, Jeff. I didn't know you knew Wu-Tang Clan. All right. In 1993, the Wu-Tang Clan made an astute observation when they released their song entitled Cream. Cream is an acronym for the first phrase in their song, Cash Rules Everything Around Me. Cream, get the money. Dollar, dollar bills, y'all. I know you guys know that song. So whether you listen to rap or not, I safely assume that you can relate to that, right? Our culture's emphasis on money. As the saying goes, cash is king. Cash is king because of three very significant convictions that we carry about cash. Here they are. I'm going to say them from the jump. You might want to write them down. Uh, These are also in your uh, city church app if you want to open that up. Here are those three convictions that we carry about cash. One, money determines our value and our worth as human beings. Two, money dictates our quality of life. And three, money ultimately decides our well-being. And what I mean by that is our safety, our security, dare I say, our salvation. These three convictions inarguably fuel our infatuation with celebrity, right? It's not so much that they're pretty people or that they're uniquely talented, because a lot of celebrities nowadays have no talent at all, but it's something more transcendent. We're infatuated with the fact that they have money. We're all infatuated with making money, getting money, saving money, growing money, and celebrities appear to have what we're wanting. Think about it. That infatuation is what brought about and sustained lifestyles of the rich and famous, MTV cribs, paparazzis in general. And this insatiable interest is why Forbes magazine puts out a rich list every single year. At least I thought there was one rich list, but I was wrong as I did some research. In fact, there are six categories of rich lists that the Forbes is always maintaining. Within one of those categories, the people category, there are these really bizarre lists such as top earning dead celebrities. Who wants to be on that list? And then there's the Forbes fictional 15, an ongoing calculation of the wealth of the likes of Scrooge McDuck and Richie Rich, C. Montgomery Burns from The Simpsons, Mr. Monopoly, and a young lady who is uh, dear and near to my heart, Lady Mary Crawley of Downton Abbey. Their wealth is constantly being observed, grown at a market p- marketplace rate, and reported Uh, In the Forbes fictional 15. Then in another category, in the actual rich list proper, there are a few rankings including America's richest families, the 400 richest Americans, and world billionaires. 
Interestingly, eight of the ten world billionaires are United States citizens. You're likely familiar with a few of them. Mark Zuckerberg, uh, founder of CEO and CEO of Facebook, he's worth more than $50 billion. Warren Buffett, owner of Berkshire Hathaway, worth more than $67 billion. Jeff Kincaid is also on that list. <laughs> he's not. Uh, Mr. Microsoft himself, Bill Gates, the richest man on planet Earth, is worth $77 billion. And in contrast to all of this, to our culture's infatuation that brings about lists that I mentioned, Jesus of Nazareth, when he was crucified, was penniless and propertyless. He didn't even own a garment to cover his naked body that was crucified on the cross. Yet and still, Time magazine names this Jesus of Nazareth as the most significant figure in all of human history. Now, let me remind you, this is the second uh, part of a three-part sermon series that I'm doing entitled The Measure of a Man. For those of you who are new with us, uh, my name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor here. I want to welcome you and thank you for being here with us. also want to welcome and thank you guys for joining us via podcast or our app. Uh, As you may recall, if you were with us last week, I began this series last Sunday referencing a documentary. The documentary is entitled The Mask You Live In. It sets out with one question in mind. The question is, what does it mean to be a man, specifically in America? In this documentary, former NFL player, author, and speaker Joe Ehrman answers that question. What does it mean to be a man by saying American masculinity is associated with three things, power, economic success, and sexual conquest. Last week, we considered Jesus, his teaching, and his way as it relates to power. Next week, we'll consider Jesus and sexual conquest. But today, this morning, what we're looking at is the measure of economic success and the life, teaching, and way of Jesus Christ. The measure of a man, economic success, is the name of the sermon today. As we set out to seriously consider Jesus in an area so near and dear to our hearts as money is, I want to rehash something that I said last week. I'm not going to say it in detail, so if you're interested in the details, go back and check out the last sermon. But it's my observation that people think about Jesus, if at all, in three primary ways. Here are the three primary ways that we think about Jesus. Suspiciously, sentimentally, and sensationally. But if we treat Jesus in one of those ways, if we disregard him with suspicion, if we discount him with sentiment, or if we diminish him with sensationalism, what's happening is that we actually miss him altogether. So my encouragement is to keep Jesus not at arm's length, but even now, just in the next few minutes, let your guns down, let your guard down, let the person, the way, the teaching of Jesus come close to something, again, as important to our American as identity, uh, as economic success, or simply put throughout the rest of the sermon, money. Okay, now, for the fellas out there, I have a question for you guys. How many of you have been taught, whether directly or indirectly, that part of being a man is making money? Raise your hand if that is true to you. 
Okay, and then keep your hands up if you've been taught even more specifically that the more money you make, the more of a man you are. And I got to put my second hand up on that one. That goes through society, it goes through sports, it goes through schooling. And again, that's because we carry those three convictions, which we'll return to throughout this sermon, that money determines our value and worth as human beings, that money dictates our quality of life, and that money decides our well-being. What I want us to see today is that Jesus interacts with those three convictions in a conversation. He doesn't initiate this conversation as if he's trying to slap people on the hand and teach them about money. As I said, he responds in a conversation that a man initiates with him. You'll see in this conversation that Jesus questions those three convictions about money. You'll see that these convictions are not new. They're not unique to us as modern people. We are very much like the people in the first century that Jesus was talking to. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles or in the City Church app to Luke uh, chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. Before we dig in, you can kind of put your thumb there and I'll, I'll meet you there in a minute. Before we dig in, I want to clear the air for those of you guys who are thinking, well, what about the idea that money is the root of all evil? What about that idea? To clarify, uh, those words, the money is the root of all evil, are never found on Jesus' lips. And that phrase is actually only derived from a sentence that's in Scripture, which reads, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So we're going to put that up on the screen, and you'll see the contrast between the two. Money is the root of all evil versus the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, there's some important context to the actual scripture there, 1 Timothy, but most notably, an older pastor is writing a younger pastor a letter, giving him some advice about how to relate to money because some people in his congregation have a very unhealthy relationship with money. So that's the heartbeat of what's going on here. So there are three significant distinctions between those two phrases. First... And this is going to matter as we think about money because I think we bring ideas with us even into church. So first, inherently, money is neither good nor bad. It's neutral, like an inanimate object. In the same way that you can use a hammer to build a home or to murder someone, money can be used for great good or for great evil. It's, It's inanimate. It's neither good nor bad. Second, The love of money is the emphasis here. Money is only loved by a human being. And that's central to the issue. Again, money is loved when someone believes that money determines our value, dictates our quality of life, or decides our well-being. And the third distinction here between the two phrases is that when someone has the love of money, that love of money becomes a root for all kinds of evil. It's not the root of evil, period. To believe that money in and of itself is the singular root of all evil is incredibly problematic. That belief oversimplifies the teaching of scripture and the reality of our day-to-day lives. And encouragement of the scriptures is self-awareness and self-examination to see yourself, to search yourself, to study yourself, to know yourself. 
I don't, I don't know why, and I don't say this to pat myself uh, on the back, but at some point I picked up a prayer that's in the 139th Psalm. And I mean, seriously, probably more than any prayer that I pray, that I pray, I find myself saying this throughout my days. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God is in a constant dance with us. He wants us to be aware of ourselves. He wants us to be assured of his love for us. So be self-aware. Examine yourself. Know yourself. If you don't, you can oversimplify this insight and say, well, money is the root of all evil. Placing the blame on money rather than being aware that our hearts make good things like money, ultimate things into into gods that our hearts make good things into god so scripture gives us insight certainly into ourselves the word of god is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path as the psalmist wrote jesus shines a light into the human condition not to condemn us but to save us from the darkness that we so easily go towards so with that in mind let's pick up in luke chapter 12 at verse 13 it's important to note that Jesus uh, is, an on, is in an ongoing and long conversation. I'd encourage you to read Luke 11 and 12 later on this afternoon. But we pick up amidst a longer conversation. In verse 13, someone in the crowd interrupts Jesus and says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. First, I so appreciate that Jesus was willing to interrupt uh, his teaching and his conversation to engage with this man. Honestly, if you guys tried to talk to me right now, I'd be like, please, shut up. I have something that I'm trying to get through here. But Jesus isn't not like that. He interrupts what he's doing and he addresses the man. That shouldn't surprise us because Jesus is concerned with the real reality of men and women's lives. He was, and he still is, concerned with real reality. Ultimately, with the greatest reality, not the reality of this man's lips, but the reality of his heart. And it was in this man's concerns that Jesus found a teaching opportunity. This man is caught up in the crowd following after Jesus, and yet he's preoccupied with his desire for some of his brother's inheritance. And that may be some of you here this morning. Somehow you're caught up in the Christian body of believers. Maybe you're interested in Jesus. You don't believe in him yet. Maybe you're intrigued by his teaching, by his way, by his popularity. And even now, you may be preoccupied with lunch or with how the stock market's doing with your plans for this week. I'm not condemning you. I want you to find yourself here in this man, following after Jesus, but preoccupied with his brother's inheritance. So, Jesus speaks to the reality of this man's heart. He says, look, dude, I'm I'm not the one. I'm not the judge. I've watched enough Judge Judy to know that family court is like not good business. So, miss me with that. Then he makes the declarative statement, not only to the man, but also to his disciples and then to the larger crowd. And what he has to say in response is, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. 
Okay, I want you to, to see this. I think this is important to note. If he needed to clarify it then, in the first century Middle East, it tells us that people are not really different then or now. If Jesus needed to clarify this teaching about money, our relationship to first century Middle Easterners, he does the same thing for us, clarifies to 21st century Evansvillians the relationship between money and identity, our relationship with money. We're not different. Fundamentally, yeah, we've advanced by technologies, we're on the moon, we have iPhones and Twitter, but I think fundamentally what you find in scripture is that the human heart and posture before God has not ever fundamentally changed. That's what made Jesus so popular throughout all the years because he speaks to the human heart, the condition of humanity, which has never changed. And to illustrate that declarative statement, Jesus is about to tell a parable. But first, let's not miss the key to Jesus' statement. He's teaching that contrary to their convictions and contrary to our convictions, money does not dictate one's quality of life. Money does not dictate one's quality of life. And not quality of life as we think about it, like maybe filtered water instead of tap water, or leather, uh, leather interior as opposed to cloth interior, two vacations instead of one vacation. We think about quality of life in very menial material terms, right? A corner office with a window instead of a cubicle. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He's saying that greed actually robs us of life as it's intended to be, the kind of life that he offers men and women. One of Jesus' most famous statements is actually concerned with the kind of life that he offers. Found in John chapter 10, verse 10. Many of you will be familiar with it. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. The message version translates that as real and eternal life. More and better life than you have ever dreamed of. That's the kind of life that Jesus offers. The word used for the kind of life on Jesus' lips is the Greek zoe which is the same word Jesus uses when he responds here. He says, Zoe does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Zoe is robbed by greed. That makes sense, though. Real life and eternal life, more life and better life than you've ever dreamed of doesn't exist in material. It doesn't exist like a gold pot at the end of the greed rainbow. That's the tragic story of celebrity. That's the tragic reality behind the closed doors of MTV Cribs is that people are not satisfied with immense amounts of money. That doesn't give them life, real life, true life. And keep in mind that Jesus doesn't say this because he was a conservative prude. That's not why he says that. It's the same Jesus that turned 150 gallons of water into the finest wine that had been tasted at a party that had been going on for days. This is the same Jesus who allowed a single woman to pour tens of thousands of dollars worth of perfume onto him as an anointing. So Jesus makes this declaration, life is not in your stuff. Life is not in your bank account. It's not at the max of your credit card. It's not in your portfolio. And then he illustrates it with this parable that we're going to see here in verse 16. 
And I, and I have to let you know. I'm sad to let you know this, but unfortunately, Jeff Kincaid is rubbing off on me. Uh, he has me reading Dallas Willard. I thought that I could just rub off on him, help him be cool, help him speak in hip language, but unfortunately, he's been rubbing off on me. So I've been reading one of his favorite authors, uh, Dallas Willard, in a book uh, called The Divine Conspiracy. Dallas Willard has this to say about parables. He says, Jesus teaches contextually and concretely from the immediate surroundings, if possible, or at least from events of ordinary life. Parables are not just pretty stories that are easy to remember. Rather, they help us understand something difficult by comparing it to placing it beside something with which we are very familiar and always something concrete and specific. So this isn't just a pretty story that Jesus is telling or teaching. He's not trying to put a nugget in our pockets that we can skip back into our life with. He's trying to affect us profoundly. So verse 16, Jesus tells them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grains. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. What I so appreciate is that the ESV version actually actually translates verse 19 as, and I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be be merry. I'm going to save, and then I'm going to save some more, is what this man says. I'm going to take my smaller containers, knock them down, build bigger containers, because I really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. I've been watching the news, and I've been watching the stock market, and legislation is changing, and they're taking my rights, and illegal immigrants are coming into the country. I really don't know how to respond to all of the turbulation of my days, so I'll take care of myself. I'll say to my soul, to myself, to my very being, soul, you can trust in the works of your own hands. Soul, you can trust in your work ethic. Soul, you can rest in the wisdom of your own mind. You can build and sustain your life on physical, material things. Soul, don't entrust yourself to God. Your intelligence is God. Your work ethic is God. Your investments are God. Your profit is God. Soul, be assured, not in God, but in yourself. Such thinking causes Jesus to clarify what God's response is to this man, which we see in verse 20. But God said to him, and this is bad business, but God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life, your soul, your very self will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves and yet is not rich towards God. And if you're in a city life group, I want you to deal with what it means to be rich towards God this week, because I'm not touching that, but we'll move forward. See, greed tells us that we can own everything, but God tells us that we don't even own ourselves. We don't own our life. We don't own our souls. 
In this parable, we see Jesus contradict that second conviction that humans have regarding money. Namely, money does not ultimately decide our well-being. Money is not the source of our safety or our security or our salvation. Jesus clarifies that that is the thought of a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And we say things in our hearts that we don't have the courage to say with our mouths. So I ask myself first this question. What does my life say? What does my money say? What does my relationship with money say about what I think and believe and trust in regards to God? The man in Jesus' parable was living as if there was no God who cared for him in the first place. He was living as if the planet isn't populated with trees with, that makes the oxygen that he breathes in and out freely. The man is living as if he sent the rain and the sunshine to grow his crops in the first place. Jesus, realizing that this parable is incredibly challenging, and if it's challenging to you as it was to me this week as I worked through it, be encouraged in Jesus' response here. He turns to his disciples and says in verse 22, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. How many of us are worried How many of us exhaust ourselves every day being worried and afraid? I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and your body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no store barn or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. In the actual language of the scripture, the end of verse 24 is a question. It's not a statement. So in modern English, here's how the end of 24 goes. And how much more valuable do you think you are than birds? Jesus uses a question to correct the third conviction that we have about money. Money does not determine your value. If you don't believe it, look to the ravens. I mean, that seems so silly, right? Way too simple, childish to us. But honestly, if you're out uh, at lunch this afternoon, you're sitting outside, watch for a bird and watch how the bird comes and picks at your food, is fed without laboring. Watch how the bird is sustained without uh, stocking up a bunch of food. Look to the ravens, watch the birds. And ask yourself the question, how much more valuable am I than, than them? God cares for them. Will God care for me? How much more valuable are you than the birds? Verse 25, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? There's worry again. Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Another question. You have little faith. How much more will he clothe you? Jesus probes us in what we think are convictions, ultimately about our relationship with God. God that feeds the ravens and clothes the wildflowers calls us the crown of his creation. But how do we think that he relates to us practically? What do you think? What do you believe? Take that with you this afternoon. Verse 29. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. 
For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, worry, worry, afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And I want to ask you to keep that little phrase in your mind. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we come full circle to the beginning of the portion of scripture. This fellow in the crowd is within an earshot of Jesus. And I often think, well, man, what would I do uh, if I was that close to Jesus? The reality is I'd probably be thinking about lunch, right? I'd be thinking about that argument that my wife and I got in or what I'm going to do for work tomorrow. That's what I'll be thinking of most likely if I was close to Jesus. That's what this man is thinking of. What's on his mind is his portion of his brother's inheritance. And inheritance is where his heart is. And I'm not knocking him for that. And I don't think that Jesus is knocking him for that either. Think about what Jesus just said in verse 32. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Not a portion of one earthly father's estate. That will last a man at best like a few uh, decades as he lives out the rest of his life. Think about it in modern terms, right? If you were Bill Gates' son, Bill Gates dies and you inherit his fortune, $77 billion. I mean, you could probably live a baller life for a very short amount of time. But then what's going to happen? You can answer that. We die, right? We die. So he's concerned about wealth that is only going to last for a very short amount of time. And as I said earlier, Jesus is concerned with the ultimate reality, the real reality, the eternal reality. Jesus comprehends our crippling convictions about cash, economic success. He understands that we think cash determines our value. He understands that we think cash decides our well-being, and he understands that we think that cash dictates our quality of life. He comprehends our crippling convictions. And listen to this. Not through the lens of an empty eternity. He's not just like, man, you're going to live forever. Don't worry about this. He doesn't comprehend that through an empty eternity, but through the framework of a father who is full. And who gives fully to fools like you and I. That's how Jesus sees eternity, through the fullness of his Father. Perhaps what we need to see most is that Jesus wasn't just talking here, right? Uh, Metaphorically, he put his money where his mouth is. And we'll bring up one more scripture and put it on the screen. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And this verse, this is the essence of how Jesus is able to say, your father was pleased to give you the kingdom. Because what we see here is that God gave the heir to his kingdom. He gave the son to his wealth. He gave the one who was going to inherit all that he had to us. Jesus, who is immensely, immensely rich. We don't think of Jesus in those terms, but as I said last week, Satan sees that Jesus is incredibly valuable. 
worthwhile as he takes him up on top of a mountain and says, look at all of the kingdoms that have been given to me. Look at all of the possessions of those kingdoms that have been given to me. Jesus, I'll give you all of that if you just bow down and worship me. That's how valuable Jesus is. Uh, worthy of all of the kingdoms of the earth and all of the possessions of those kingdoms. And because of this reality, Jesus' immense worth, his immense value, his richness, he's able to say, money does not determine your value as a human being. Your value is determined not only in the fact that God made you in his image, but that God ransomed you at the cost of my life. Jesus, the most valuable creature in all of the universe. God gave Christ for us, telling us how valuable we are. I mean, honestly, we value ourselves by a pair of sneakers, right? I got some fresh J's. We value ourselves by our homes, by our cars, by our portfolios. God values us at the cost and measure of his son, the heir to his throne. So your value isn't dictated by money. Money does not dictate your quality of life, says Jesus. And why is that? Just because he doesn't like how things operate among human beings? No, no, no. Because Jesus has come at the cost of his life to give us zoe, life that is not only eternal, but life that is abundant. He invites us unto himself, not only to believe in him and to have eternal life, but to fashion our lives after his, to go his way, to build our life on his teaching, and to have life that is more and better than we could ever imagine. Right? We all get sold on advertisements, man. That's the kind of life I'm trying to have right there, boy. I want that possession. I want that vacation. Jesus says, you cannot comprehend uh, the quality of life, the immensity of life that I give to you. Which is interesting, and you'll hear this a lot, you know, stateside. People, Christians, will go to other countries, right? Poor, impoverished countries. And they'll come back home and they'll say, oh my gosh, what I can't believe is how those people who live in crushing poverty have a zoe life. They're so joyful. They're so happy. They're so content. They possess something that material could never give to us. And again, because of this reality, Jesus is able to say that money most certainly does not secure your well-being. Money doesn't dictate your security, your safety, or your salvation. Again, dealing in reality, we all die, right? Dealing in reality, every empire rises and falls. Wars are a part of our experience. Sickness is a part of our experience. That is reality. Jesus says if you entrust wealth to keep you secure, you fool yourself. Jesus secures an eternal security for us, again, by his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his soon coming return when he defeats death. Jesus defeats death death because the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich became poor for us not considering equality with God something to be grasped but emptying himself on the cross for the cost of our sin money does not determine our value or worth as human beings money does not dictate our quality of life money most certainly does not decide our well-being 
And Jesus has gone ahead of us. He invites us to follow after him, to take literally, not figuratively, not metaphorically, into our lives today this greater reality that God so values us at the cost of his son that we can begin to value ourselves through that lens and value one another through that lens as well. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord God, the power of our ideas could never truly be measured. Uh, I know that even though I just preached that sermon, that I, there's, there's something in my heart, man, that just does not believe it. So I want to uh, live, God, even just today, not worrying about tomorrow in a way that places my relationship uh, with wealth and money and economic success uh, second to your valuation of me, your eternal valuation of me. That even though I have uh, robbed and stole and by hating, uh, I've committed murder in my mind, you have been pleased to give me a kingdom. You've been pleased to give us your kingdom. We don't look into an eternity that is uh, empty, where we sing songs uh, and flap around like angels. We look into an eternity where a kingdom has been established, where a king rules rightly and justly, where we have citizenship that will not waste away, where we have secure borders and safety where we rest a night. In fact, where there are no borders, an eternal kingdom. And God, eternal life, uh, you teach us in Christ, isn't just something that we experience after we die, but you have brought eternal life to us uh, in Christ. You have deposited uh, our guarantee of eternal life in the Holy Spirit. God, allow me first to make room in my life to live into the realities of the eternity that you have brought close, God. Let me not measure uh, myself by economic success, but let me measure myself by the valuation that you put on me in the cross of your son, Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.